From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. I am your host, Nicholas Ibarra, and after a long break from our special Gimme 3 episodes, we are back with one today, and our theme today is sci-fi premonitions, so God knows the places we're going to go on this episode, but we're happy to have you along for the ride, and joining us for this mindfuck is returning guest. That's Give the me best three. way to call it. <laughs> returning guest, Gimme Three Master, Mr. David Chu. David, thank you for being with us today. I, I was going to keep it clean, but that is, there's no other way to describe it, I guess. Oh, no, it is definitely. And, and, you know, some of these movies you have to make, you probably should be a grown-up to watch them. So That's know, true. That's true. Works out pretty well. We have some rated R films here. We do. We um, do. It's been too long, my friend. It's been too long. Thanks for, be- for I being know. back. I know. I am so thrilled. To, I, I anytime I can do this, this is always you know a, just a treat. It's like it's like going to like my favorite donut place. You know what I mean? It's just always like all right. I'm so excited to be part of this, and I'm so excited for like this topic. This is just like a fun topic to get a chance to really visit some really fun movies. So yeah, so sci-fi premonitions. These are for our listeners. These are movies that we've picked that we feel have kind of predicted things, some a little too close for comfort and some, you know, in in a sort of like symbolic way, but all very interesting. We're going to get into some interesting topics today and we're going to talk about some classic films. So David, why don't you start us off speaking of classic films? Sure. Yeah. First of all, I have to say, this feels especially appropriate because it feels like we all lived through a sci-fi premonition film. Yes. It's very, (laughs) definitely feels... Like, I'm I'm in the middle of it. So I usually try to pick films that maybe folks haven't always heard of. I like to go give a shout out to, like, films that maybe, you know, are a little off the beaten track and aren't necessarily on your list. And and probably maybe many listeners wouldn't have heard of this film. But if you've attended any film studies class in college or went to film school or did watched any documentary on intro to film, You've probably heard of this movie. It's considered one of the first science fiction movies and probably indeed one of the most influential. And yet it felt like no discussion of sci-fi premonitions could really happen without discussing Fritz Lang's Metropolis. This is a film that was made in 1927. It's a silent film. Its budget, I cannot even imagine what its budget would be translated into like 2021 dollars i mean the set pieces the special effects still hold up the Mm -hmm. scope of this film is incredibly epic so it's a silent film but it's also just it's a blockbuster it's full of eye candy fritz lang was a jewish director before the time of the nazis it's interesting the film has a lot of christian symbolism and indeed that we'll see this being a a theme throughout a lot of the films that we picked um, even from other jewish directors interestingly enough it's a film that i think in 1927 predicts a lot of the ways in which not only human society will evolve but science fiction will evolve yeah the look the feel the obsessions if you watch this film then you watch blade runner or blade runner 2049 you'll think oh i get where blade runner got it from Mm -hmm. oh i get where 
other films like, you know, like other kind of films like that of the sort of urban future got that idea from other films about robotics and a question about the boundaries between man and machine. So to give you a bit of an overview, it's a film that takes place in some sort of futuristic time in which there's this incredibly dense city, this metropolis. This has become now a very common sci-fi trope, but at the time was probably new and revolutionary where the rich live in the clouds. They live on in this wonderful existence. There's a club for, you know, rich men called the the Club of the Sons. Right. There's this, you know, the main character is this industrialist. And then the workers live down below in the workers' city, which is just grimy and underground. And they're working these grueling jobs, trying to make these ridiculously complicated machines that we don't even know what they do. And we get the sense the workers don't even know what they do. And there's some social tensions. And there's a young female activist. And I think it's modeled off of other labor activists, who many of which were women, by the way. They were middle-class women who... In this time period, a lot of middle-class women didn't have to work and they became, would become involved, at least in the United States, and I think true in Europe as well, in various social causes. You know, Hull House, other types of activism were there. One of the issues was labor, and so I think she's modeled after them. A lot of them were quite religious, and she's sort of presented as a kind of a preacher. She kind of preaches in what, what looks like a church in the catacombs, but she's trying to preach for peace between the workers and the the head of the industrialist, or as the in the language of the silent film, the head and the hands. Mm-hmm. At one point, the translation is the brain and the hands, which is a little, <laughs> a little pejorative and toward the workers, in my opinion. But, right. uh, but you know, it's the translation. And she keeps promising this mediator is going to come. So again, we have a little bit of a, a Christ-like figure. This will, if anybody's seen Dune recently, it actually kind of unpacks the whole idea of a messiah and maybe kind of looks at it a little skeptically. But at this time, the movie's quite earnest about this idea of maybe a a messianic figure will come to kind of bridge the industrialist upper class and the worker class. But there's an inventor and he's in league with the industrialist. He sees, you know, the industrialist head sees this growing labor movement as a threat. So what they do is they create a robot. They capture the young woman and the robot is able to disguise itself as her and actually tries to turn the worker movement the growing labor movement violent right thinking it could still control them but to try and discredit the worker movement and this is actually ironically this is this is this isn't even predictive this is things that just people were doing at the right time. <laughs> this is very i mean it's interesting for a sci-fi movie how grounded it is in in labor relations and the main character and this is a guy i mean is you it's worth discussing him in the context of other films because one thing we're going to see I found really interesting in the protagonists is a lot of the protagonists are motivated by love. And I sort of use love loosely because really it's more infatuation. They see some beautiful woman. They immediately become intoxicated with her. They don't really care about the social issues happening around them. They just want to find this woman. And yet that leads them down a journey that ends up actually putting them at the center of all of these issues happening. And that's kind of the gist, I would say, of Metropolis. Yeah, and I mean, you know, what's so fascinating about this film is like, it predicts a lot of things from a societal standpoint, but it was also like, Fritz Lang made this as a social commentary to the present time that he was living in. This film's almost 100 years old, and you're just like, 
society in itself hasn't changed much. The technology has changed. This film is more predictive in like its technology and the way that metropolises look, <laughs> you know, visually. But from a class system standpoint, it holds up today just as much as it did 90 some odd years ago. The themes are still very relevant and they were very relevant and very controversial when he made the film. I think Germany, soon after the film was made, banned it. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think you're right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, they, they banished him. I think he he had to go to the United States like in the 30s. And yeah. he he was exiled from Germany because his films were too, you know, considered very Marxist and, and, and very communist. And this film does have some ideals and themes. But like you said, I mean, any science fiction film has borrowed from Metropolis, whether they know it or not, you know, <laughs> because yeah, if they're yeah. borrowing from other science fiction films, those science fiction films have likely borrowed from Metropolis. It's a master class. The amount of visual symbolism packed into each frame of this film is like really astounding because with silent films, like so much of the story was told through visuals and Lang was one of the first directors to kind of use not just visuals to tell the story in terms of like actor goes from point A to point B, actor makes a loving face at a girl he likes, but he was using symbolism where people were in the frames, use of light and use of dark all these things that, you know, now are just kind of commonplace in the world of cinema. He was one of the innovators of it. Yeah, yeah. And there's a biting aspect to, um, I mean, like you said, this is this was seen as a dangerous film. And, mm-hmm. and I would argue even is probably still would be seen in certain places as a dangerous film. For what it argues, even though I don't think the film was particularly radical. I mean, it, there's a version of this film where you could just sort of say like, yeah, let's overthrow the government and let's do all that. You know, it's worth noting this is about about 10 years out from the communist revolution in Russia and the birth of the Soviet Union. So the thought of a worker uprising is actually not that far-fetched. Right. What Lang proposes is sort of a mediation, like a the slogan, they say it at the beginning and at the end of the film, you know, the mediator between the head and the hands must be the heart. Right. Which is, right. A, I mean, ironically, a you know, a little bit of a you know, if only it were that simple, but ultimately arguing for a heart. It doesn't try to overthrow capitalism. It tries to argue for just, you know, an empathetic, emotional connection between worker and an industrialist. And ironically, the person who it puts forward as the, the mediator is the son of the industrialist. So it <laughs> right, doesn't right. even upset the power order. He's a very interesting character, too. Talk about what he predicts. I didn't think about this before we did our Gimme Three. But he is a prototype for a certain type of protagonist that you see a lot. Mm -hmm. He's a character who, even though this is a film about social commentary, is not particularly aware or plugged into the dystopia, which maybe makes sense, right? We oftentimes want a protagonist who's a bit like us, who's maybe unfamiliar with the world who goes on a journey. So he's a character whose eyes are not open. You see like this, this archetypical character that's created in Frederer, Mm-hmm. From butchering the German, but he, you will see him in throughout some of these other films. And, and I have to say, watching the film, he doesn't exhibit a sort of traditional masculinity. He's very sensitive. He's prone to some sort of rather exaggerating speeches. He also, his sensitivity becomes an asset in that he really is the heart. He feels very empathetic toward the people he encounters. At one point, he sees this guy struggling with this machine and says, goes up to the worker and says, I want to trade lives with you. And then he gives him his clothes. 
and he takes the worker's clothes. He says, all right, I'll run this machine. His empathy is both a strength and also makes him a bit of a, you know, with the old saying about Captain Planet where like everybody had earth and fire and what did Mati get was like heart. And you're like, well, what right. does that power do? It's like, <laughs> you're like he spends right. a lot of the movie not really doing right. a lot that's particularly useful. Just, just looking at things and going, the horror. The, the horror. horror. <laughs> and finally, he helps save some children with our with our heroine, who I think is really the unsung. She's the real hero of the of this film. Absolutely. Um, but it's, and then actually that will become another trope we'll see is, is, uh, Brazil will do something really interesting with this, where at the end you sort of wonder, well, what did the hero really accomplish? Yeah. Um, so he's a really interesting ca- figure in that he becomes this archetype for the sci-fi dystopia hero. And I think, I think it's really fascinating that the sci-fi dystopia, you would think it would have, I mean, you know, all right, sometimes you have the sort of alpha male figure, like a snake Pliskin in Escape from New York is definitely that kind of figure. But more than not, the whole, a lot of times it tries to position it as somebody who really doesn't imagine themselves that they're going to go out and go be a hero and overthrow the system. I think for a dystopia, that actually makes a very appealing hero because it allows the audience to go on that journey with the hero. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Absolutely. And I think that's as good of a cue into our next film as any. Oh, yeah. But let me throw to just for our friends at home who want to watch Metropolis. If you haven't seen it, I understand this is probably one of those films that like you have heard about for years and years and years. And if you've never seen it, like check it out. It is absolutely worth watching. This film's a hundred years old. It really does hold up. The special effects hold up really well. They really do. They really do. And it's just like, it's gorgeous to look at. And as you can tell from our conversation, like thematically it holds up too. So it's available to stream. Where is it available to stream? It's on Canopy, which is um, a free service. If you have an LA library or or a number of other participating libraries and you just sign up with your, if you get an LA library card, which is free for all California state residents, and I'm sure it's true with many other library cards. And then it's uh, available for free. You get 10 free streamings from Canopy. And I think it's also available for rent and other digital platforms as well. Absolutely. Metropolis, it's, a, it's an absolute classic. So from one dystopian world to another, we go into Brazil, a 1985 film by Terry Gilliam, a critical look at a dystopian world which is really just a hyper mirror of the world that we live in today and the world that we were living in in 1985. And this is a world where, quote unquote, the system does everything to hold us back, hold itself back, break us down, keep us buying, keep us numb. And this film has perhaps my favorite first 15 minutes of a film ever. The first 15 minutes of this movie, I think, are like, so impressive. The scope of what happens in these first 15 minutes is uh, tremendous. The film starts, we see this massive terrorist bomb explosion, quote unquote terrorist. We're introduced to a world where this large scale bombings are occurring like on an almost daily basis. And in that world, the system has no grasp on how to control it. After that bombing, they immediately arrest a wrong man. They arrest this guy, Buttle, even though they're looking for a guy named Tuttle. So it's like a stupid typo. And he's like a father and a husband. And it's just like a nightmarish arrest scene. We see the arrest receipt for that man go through like this 
massive office of just paperwork, stacks and stacks and stacks of paperwork. And it's just flying from one cart to another, to another stack of paper, to another stack of paper. And the shots are incredible, like just showing the scope of this thing. And finally, we meet this guy, Sam Lowry, who works for the Ministry of Information. So he's he's very much a player in the system. He is a part of it, much like the character in Metropolis. But, you know, he's kind of like in between two worlds where he's dumb and numb to the system, but he's also frustrated by it in the same way that we're frustrated by the world that we live in, but continue to do nothing about it every day. But, you know, Sam is yearning to break free from this world. And really what he's yearning to break free from, it seems, is responsibility. (laughs) You know, like he doesn't want to work. He doesn't want to like be a part of like this daily grind. He just wants to fly around to find a beautiful woman. And because of too much paperwork, he, he just he just can't get it done. So anyway, that's that's pretty much the setup of the film. And it goes to, as every Terry Gilliam film does, it goes into some crazy and dark places. I mean, it's ultimately a, a commentary on our past, present, and our future. And I think what's so cool about this film is like, I think at the beginning of the film, it just says some, at some time in the 20th century. So it right. doesn't, we don't really know exactly where we are, but it uses production design, costume design to like allude to like many different time periods. Certain elements of the world feel like it's in the future. Certain elements of the world feel like it's in the past. Certain elements of the film feel like it was, you know, like from 1985. Right, so right. I like that in that it's like, universal like you could watch it today and still feel like is this in the future is it in the past like you don't really know it's just it like, has a film noir aspect i mean it, it, there's parts yeah. of it that look like it could take place in the time period of metropolis for sure the, yeah in the and, and actually both of them have these gigantic skyscrapers that block out the sun and and you know the people live in these stratified societies ironically the interesting thing about la is apparently my fellow environmentalists tell me that actually we should sort of live like more like that it's more eco-friendly to live like New York, yeah, right. you don't think about it. Then these giant spread out lawns, which waste a ton of water and, you know, are not natural plants. And skyscrapers are actually somewhat more eco-friendly. But but needless to say, this dystopic vision of these towering buildings. In fact, there's this one wonderful sequence where he's flying around in his mind, imagining him he's some sort of like mythological hero. And then suddenly the over this beautiful natural landscape and then suddenly these giant skyscrapers break out of the ground one after another as if reality his his urban density reality is intruding on yeah him. yeah so cool so it's cool really cool you know they yeah there's a lot of dream sequences like that like any gilliam film there's like this movie's chock full of dream sequences and the dream sequences tell as much of the story as the reality that the character is living in but I saw this film first when I was in high school, like in my high school film class, we watched this and I thought it was awesome. I think a lot of stuff went over my head the first time I watched it. And over the past five years, I've like revisited it multiple times and it's separating itself as like maybe my favorite Gilliam film and one of my favorite films from the 80s. It's really memorable. I mean, mm-hmm. sort of offbeat in a way that, you know, Gilliam films are, you know, they really you know, can't imagine anybody else making them. I have to say, too, I found that when I first watched this film, I found the protagonist somewhat challenging. He just became really laser focused on this woman that he's infatuated. He doesn't even really know. And he's kind yeah. of he likes her because she looks like some woman in his dreams. And 
And he never sort of gets, you know, called to some cause greater than himself. And it was actually in doing this Gimme 3 that realizing that actually a lot of figures in these sci-fi dystopias actually are like him. Their lives, they're not necessarily materially lacking, right? right? They reflect a society. There may be other people whose lives are lacking materially, like this Buttle, this poor Archibald Buttle who's captured and, and on mistaken identity. You get the idea that his family lives in poverty or, or is on the economic margins and on the outskirts. But Sam Lowry, much like you know, Frederer, much like a lot of these people, don't materially want anything. They never have to worry, is food going to be on the table tomorrow? And yet, they feel really empty. Yeah. And so what they're craving for is romance. And I don't mean just both romance in the literal sense and also romance in the sort of sense of they're dreaming of being heroes, right? They, they tend to speak in very flowery language. They imagine themselves. They're daydreaming of themselves and, and as yeah. a sort of heroic I mean, figure. Yeah, Sam Lowry is literally dreaming of himself as a knight in shining armor yeah, coming, to, coming to save a woman and fight monsters, you know? <laughs> so yeah. he's literally craving that romance. But it's really interesting to see one of the things that in rewatching this film in the context of other films, I thought, oh, Gilliam is really trying to say something with the fact that this man really lives all of inside his mind. And indeed, when you get to the end of the film, it seems like maybe that's the one triumph he has. None of these people overthrow the dystopian society that they're part of. It's almost implied that the society is just too powerful. Right. Their only struggle is for some sort of individual personal freedom. And look, I'm looking at this in 2021. There's a sense of sort of a sense of democracy being at stake. Maybe I'm sitting there going, why can't people be called to some sort of higher cause and try and challenge the system, yada, yada. Aside from like films like Metropolis, one of the things that Brazil really connects to with its legacy, it really is influenced by is Kafka. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And Kafka characters are really trapped in their own issues. They're, they don't even understand the dystopic world that they're part of. and any attempts to try and change the system are ultimately futile and they're just trying to eke out some existence of personal happiness. And indeed for people who've lived under totalitarian states or, or even the quiet desperation it's implied of living in a ostensibly materialist, materially comforted society. Remember this is made in the eighties, the hyper-capitalistic greed is good eighties. There's a reaction to, yeah, okay, we have everything provided for, we're not starving, but somehow our lives are, are empty and soulless in a way we can't quite put our fingers on. And it made me realize that sort of the biggest thing this guy can do is dare to dream. Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned Kafka. It's like, this guy is after that romance. You know, I mean, even the woman that he becomes infatuated with, he has this idea in his head that this woman is a part of the rebellion and that she is like some terrorist who's like doing these bombings that is not confirmed at all. In fact, it's it's, it's likely that she's not one of those. She's just this poor woman who gets caught up and it becomes hard to tell in a kind of wonderful way. What's real and what's not. Does this woman actually come to love him or is he projecting it? I mean, it's a little, the flip side of it is I, you know, I haven't followed the story at all, but there's some drama in London about Terry Gilliam directing this rendition of Into the Woods. And I guess he apparently said some comments um, that were seen as critical of the Me Too movement. You know, I don't know enough to really speak to that or what's going on there. But I can say, you know, 
there is an element and you can sort of see it from like nerdy guys who write sci-fi of mm-hmm. just kind of like they have a they have a brief interaction with some you know woman in the grocery store and they just imagine this yeah. entire fantasy are relationship they, they, yeah they've got they've got a lifetime of of letting their minds run with it and it's like Bro, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and this guy is so a prototype of that character. Exactly. And we, again, we see this character a lot where you sort of say, like, do you even know this woman? And now you're just convinced she's the one for you. And, right. and I, first of all, I think it's a relatable trait, apparently, for a certain amount of sci-fi writers. And not necessarily always the best trait. But also, it's interesting. But it's honest. It's, it's honest. It is honest. And I think it also speaks to this idea of a world that feels empty, right? Mm-hmm. Like Sam Lowry thinks what he wants is romance, like this woman's love. But that's not really what he wants. All his fantasies don't involve like making love to her or right. anything like that. They involve rescuing her from demons. He wants to be, he wants life to have meaning. Yeah. An adventure. He's in a mundane job. In a mundane right. world where every move requires a signature on some form of paperwork. You know, he's got the same breakfast every morning that comes out of a machine, you know, like right. in this futuristic slash not futuristic world, like they order food at a restaurant and it's all just like piles of like different colored goop. <laughs> you right. know, he is looking for adventure and freedom from this world that has completely robbed him of soul. And that I think is, you know, I wouldn't say is premonist because I think, as you mentioned, in the height of like 80s capitalism, I think it was a commentary on the time. But that idea and that feeling still very much holds up as we're seeing within our society today. I think Metropolis and Brazil, if you got a good four and a half hours afternoon, that would make a great double bill. So I say check it out. It's available on Tubi. But I also recommend, I think it's available on the Criterion channel with some commentary from Terry Gilliam and some special features as well. So if you have the Criterion channel, check it out. I think it's available on there as well. All right, Mr. Chu, your second pick. Yeah, so my film, this is a film that I have loved and I've been waiting to talk about. So this is a joy that I get to talk about. It is a film I wish was more known. It is definitely a head trip. It's by Ari Fullman who was nominated for an Oscar for the film Waltz with Bashir. He's a a filmmaker who works in animation. This film is about half animation, 60% animation, 40% live action. It is incredibly creative. And so the premise is, it was made in 2013. Ari Fullman, another Jewish filmmaker who remains very captivated by Christian imagery. And I think that's another trope we're going to see is the blending between religion and technology, the whole church of technology that seems to kind of become a recurrent theme in a lot of these films. And this one, it starts with Robin Wright, plays a version of Robin Wright, the actress. And this is fascinating because it really just blurs the line between reality and fiction. So she's playing a version of herself with two children. I presume are not her real children. I'm not even sure if her children even have this issue. She has one child who's slowly losing both hearing and eyesight. And in this version, Robin Wright's career has just completely stalled. So it's either before House of Cards or we're just ignoring the fact that she's on it. I think it's, yeah, I think it's like right before House of Cards. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the timing might be right before House of Cards. So Robin Wright is sort of a a washed up actress who's, who's 44. And this sleazy studio head comes to her with this new technology and says 
we're going to scan. This seems like a, I mean, we already are kind of on the cusp of having this technology, sort of a version of what would be now known as deep fake technology. Again, it's really scary because it's, it really feels like we are now entering this world where he said, we'll scan you and we'll buy the rights to you as an actress. You're never allowed to act again. We'll give you this, you know, what seems like an unimaginable sum of money that she can just retire and never do and have to work again in her life. And we will have the rights to make any movie starring a digital version of Robin Wright. And she'll just act in whatever we cast her in. And it'll just be a, a like a totally deep fake version or just a virtual Robin Wright. And she debates about signing it and then she signs it. And then we fast forward to 20 years where the same studio has partnered with, again, we see this kind of interesting Japanese element, this this group called the Nagasaki Corporation, named after I, one of the cities that was you know bombed by mm-hmm. an atomic bomb. So we get kind of a, there's a little bit of like really sledgehammer symbolism right there. Yeah. In, in what is a really, really actually a, a lot of elegant metaphors, but um, a film that normally is, is very you know creative and crafty. But she enters this world where you can take these drugs and kind of live in this sort of animated world hallucination. I mean, think of Roger Rabbit, like you were just living in just permanently in the kind of a Looney Tunes at some point, somebody actually refers to it as like Looney Tunes as similar style of animation version of, of reality. That's just a, a collective hallucination. This is what gives the title the Congress. It's sort of a futurist Congress, which is like this meeting about how this is going to be the future. And then the rebellion happens there. And again, the main character is not involved in the rebellion. She's just trying to kind of preserve meaning and eventually help her son. So that's the love story there. It's not a ro- necessarily a romantic one, although there is a romance, but it's really about her and her son. And then it fast forward to the future again. Right. I love films that do this where you just kind of jump through time and a couple of times to really see the evolution of society. And now society has completely lost touch with reality. You get the sense that most of the earth is living in an animated hallucination where anybody can be anything, right? You can just be whatever you want. And it doesn't even resemble your body. You probably forgot what you even looked like. So you can be a centaur. You can be a... Marilyn Monroe, you can be a cheeseburger, you can be anything, right? You can live anything, you can do anything. You're just living in this paradise. And at one point, Robin Wright actually takes an antidote so she can escape the collective hallucination. And she, you discover the world is just this dystopia of a crumbling ruin where everybody's wandering around in rags because nobody's living in that reality. They've all escaped to a a fantasy reality. Right. And later on, she discovers there's a few people living on like Zeflins. It's kind of it's a really weird, weird movie. It's creative. But if you bear with it, it's a, it's actually not hard to get into. And it's a really relatable story. There's like a few people who are still living in the real world. But for the most part, everybody seems to prefer like you, you would think that would be or like the movie would be like, all right, don't live in the fantasy world, live in the real world. But then she goes to the people who are living on these like giant blimps and they're, <laughs> They're not much happier either. Right. <laughs> it's like, well, we're just waiting to die. Actually, 
I kind of think you should go and just join the hallucination with everybody. So which is kind of really sad. And again, a lot of these dystopias are, are again, they're, they're supposed to be sci-fi warnings. So, you know, they don't really present these societies where the problems are easily fixed. They're really meant to be a warning to us. Robin Wright never does anything about the hallucination. She just kind of learns to find meaning in it. And yeah. the meaning is her son. It's really interesting the way that Ari Fullman uses animation because he uses animation to signify the collective delusion, the illusion. So again, the interesting thing is all these films are jumping from one to the other to the other. They're, we're both pairing them up, but they're all leading to each other. And one of the things that Brazil was about was the positive element of Sam Lowry was that he was such a dreamer. That was the one thing that allowed him to escape the doldrums of his society. But then this film takes a bit of a skeptical, critical eye about dreaming and asks, is there a risk of us completely losing touch with ourselves and reality? Yeah, what do we lose? Yeah, by escaping into this hallucination. At one point, she does have a romance with this person, animated person played, you know, who's voiced by John Hamm fantastically. And at one point, when he gives her the antidote and says, now you're going to see the truth as it really is, he says, do me a favor and don't look at me. I want you to remember me as you remembered me in my animation, right? You know, right. I, yeah. I may look nothing like, and indeed, he's probably quite old, where he, says he appears as this young, handsome man in the animation. Like, we don't really know what this guy looks like in reality. We don't really know his story. We probably don't even know what his voice necessarily even sounds like, because even that's implied that that could be part of a hallucination. And again, the film doesn't just automatically be like, no, you got to be in reality. Because again, reality isn't really portrayed as that much lovelier either. But it asks these hard questions. Does life have meaning if we really always just live in our dreams? Right. It plays with that question that Brazil asked and that a lot of the films that we're going to discuss today ask. What is real? Like, what is the actual definition of real? It's interesting, on a recent episode of Film Forward, we talked about Ari Foreman's Waltz with Bashir, mm. very personal animated documentary. And what I love about him is he's just, he's so unafraid of breaking from genre and he's so unafraid to explore the cinematic medium and storytelling with the audience. It feels like he's like seeing how far he can go with it, you know, in real time. And it's like, I think that's really admirable. You know, in terms of the technology, we're already there, you know, as you mentioned, like, I think I was watching an interview after I watched this movie. I was watching an interview with Robin Wright about this movie. And she mentioned in an interview, she was like, I already did this. Like, I did it for the Zemeckis film. What was that? Oh, Polar Express. Uh, Polar Express. This already happened. My reactions, my face, all my emotions, they did this. And that's on a hard drive somewhere. It's pretty scary yeah. when you think about it. And I mean, and now we've seen that since then, we've seen them recreate posthumous Carrie Fisher using CGI and other people, right. you know. They've completely created these people that look exactly like the actor. She was dead, you know? Right. So, And this whole idea of the collective world where you can be anybody. Well, think about this. We just got through a whole time in which we were relating to each other entirely through like Zoom, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And Zoom has these filters. Yeah. And they're getting pretty good. Like there's like I somebody was like, wow, how do you? I was on a Zoom where somebody was like, you look so great in the morning. I don't look that good. And somebody said, oh, this is just the makeup filter that I'm wearing on Zoom. So how long before, I mean, easily in 10 years, I can imagine a Zoom filter where you can look like anybody and sound like anybody. And in theory, we could have a whole Zoom where nobody knows what anybody really looks like. And I mean, there's other things we've gotten even further than that, you know, like with virtual reality and, and like, you know, virtual reality games, like people 
I am not a gamer, but this is probably 10 years old technology in gaming. But I'm pretty sure that people can go onto games and create an avatar of themselves and go and interact with other players and be that person. And they do that stuff for hours and hours at a time. And now they're doing it in virtual reality. That is what this is. Oh, yeah. And think about, remember, the whole scandal about the disinformation campaign in the election where people who were going on Facebook or other social media and pretending to be people they're not. Yeah. Saying, oh, don't vote for this candidate or that candidate. And indeed, isn't the whole, there's an old, what is it, there was a saying that went around Reddit, like on Reddit, nobody knows you're a cat. (laughs) Right, Um, yeah. But the whole idea, you can pretend to be a totally other person, right? And maybe some people really get off on the idea of pretending if you're, you know, this person pretending to be somebody, catfishing, right? Right. The whole idea behind catfishing is that so we already live in a world where people can live other lives, create, you know, avatars of themselves that aren't real, who they quote unquote really are. And maybe for some people feel more real than who they really are. You know, I think it was at some point Facebook tried to do something where it said, oh, you have to tie in your Facebook profile to your legal name. Right. Or something. And there was pushback from groups like, for example, the transgender community who said, wait a minute, this is one of the few places that we could actually, without having to jump through a lot of hoops, get called by the names that are more real to us Mm -hmm. than our quote unquote real name, our legal name, you know, which isn't as real in our opinion. Right. Right. So we already live in a world where what's real is really being challenged. The idea of this is reality, quote unquote, and this is fantasy or dream or unreality. Those words are are already no longer having the meaning that we may have previously thought they did. And indeed, maybe makes us wonder, did they ever have the meaning we thought they did? Because as we go back, like we said, look at sci-fi movies back from the 80s, back from the 1920s, we start to realize that all these films kind of play with the idea of what's real. Yeah, what's real, for sure. That moment where she like took the pill and like went back to reality, I thought oh, that yeah. was, I just was like, holy shit, like that was so powerful. And it's like, such a trip. I couldn't, I couldn't help but think of society today, just like kind of walking around like zombies, you know, being just completely high from right. their cell phones, you know, right? That's like what is happening in this film is they're like high on this new drug. I don't know, if it's a legitimate drug or technology or whatever it is. The idea is technology pulling us away from what's real and what's important. And in a case of Robin Wright, it was her son. She lost the relationship with her son for decades. Right. That was the moment where this movie really punched me in the gut. And I was like, Jesus. I mean, it makes you wonder. I could totally imagine that world existing. And it's not a matter of if, when the internet gets so good and we plug it into our brains and we can feel anything we want to feel see anything we want to see, hear anything we want to hear. God, reality is not going to compete with that, Yeah, right? Right. And I can imagine us all just shambling around like a crumbling city, wearing rags covered in our own filth, not bathing or just having whatever sustenance we need to keep us alive to keep hallucinating because nothing we ever eat in real life will taste as good as the stimulus that's being projected (laughs) directly into our brains. Right. And yet, and yet, I gotta say, what is one of the things all of us, like some of us, at least me, certainly did the moment we got vaccinated is go out and see people in person yeah, and right. go out and do things. I mean, how awesome, when, you know, your wedding with Sonia, how awesome was it to actually be there with real people eating real tacos, <laughs> playing real trivia games? 
right? It was, like, I mean, it was one of the greatest days of my life. <laughs> right? If not the greatest not day just because you were getting married, because it was like after a year and a half of relating to people in a virtual way, we did feel kind of like, not that it's bad, you know, we're still doing a virtual podcast, you're in your place, I'm in my place. Right. It's useful, it's got its place, but it felt really nice to just, there's a, a magic and an energy to being present in reality, that, unquote, yeah. whatever that is. It's that energy. In the last episode of <laughs> Film Forward, I talked to an author who wrote this book, Acting with Energy. And energy is a real thing. It is a quantifiable thing. And it is something that can't be replaced. And I don't know if technology will get to that place of replacing that human energy. But in any case... This was a really interesting film, man. <laughs> I'm glad yeah. you brought it to my attention. We wish more people knew about it. So this is a chance for more people to know about it. It is a head trip, but it is so accessible and it is so fun. My only regret is, and I will do it at some point. Look, I'm not the kind of guy who's, speaking of like detaching from reality, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to promote doing drugs on my own podcast. <laughs> but I would I would highly recommend taking a tab of acid and watching this film. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine what happened. You'll go to some really interesting places. The Congress it is available on Hulu to stream right now. Please let me know how that goes. Yeah, especially <laughs> if you take a tab of acid. Then, Please let me then know how I, that goes. I mean, that's, maybe we should have some scientists study <laughs> while you're doing no it. No kidding. Speaking of tabs of acid, Videodrome by David Cronenberg. If you're familiar with Cronenberg's work, especially his early work. Yeah. You know how disturbing they could be. He's, you know, famous for his body horror. Yes. I think this film goes beyond the body horror, although there is some body horror in it. This is really a psychological sci-fi thriller with a harsh critique on mass media. It's Cronenberg's satire on mass media, basically. So yeah. this film follows Max, who's played by a young James Woods, and he is the president of a controversial local television station, Channel 83. And what they air is sex and violence. Yep. And this go-getter, he is just looking for something more. He's just like, this stuff is soft. We need something more extreme. We need something, you know, tougher. He keeps saying, we need something tougher. So he's looking for something to really break through. And his video tech finds an illegal scramble of a show called Videodrome, which at first they think uh, the signal's coming from Malaysia, then they think it's coming from Pittsburgh, which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So Videodrome is basically an hour of disturbing and very realistic torture and murder. And it's just brutal imagery that looks far too real. And Max digs it, and he's looking to acquire it for his TV station. And in the midst of all this, he begins a relationship with a radio personality played by Debbie Harry, who is, I mean, I don't think there's ever been a morning where Debbie Harry wakes up and she's not freaking awesome, but yeah, yeah. she's freaking awesome in this movie. Yeah, she's so perfectly cast. She's so perfectly cast. So he shows her Videodrome and she's into it because she is into stuff like that. So Yeah, she's a masochist. She's a masochist, right? essentially. So then she wants to be on Videodrome, which is really interesting. She says, I'm going to Pittsburgh and I'm going to audition for Videodrome. And Max is like, well, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Anyway, she bounces. And meanwhile, Max is still in pursuit of Videodrome, acquiring it. And the more he sees a Videodrome, he starts to hallucinate. We're back on the hallucinations, folks. We're back into what's real and what's not. So the hallucinations, they start escalating 
rapidly and they are horrifying. And he has a hard time deciphering what's real, what's not. He goes on a hunt for the foundation of Videodrome. It leads him down a dark tunnel. And I mean, I can't really go too much further in the plot because at that point, it's impossible for the audience to know what is real and what's not really. Let's just say it just becomes a wild ride. But, you know, the plot points get very murky, but the theme and the dangers of mass media is very pronounced. That is the one thing that is in your face and not in question and it feels more relevant today, perhaps, than it did in 1983. And, you know, like January is uh, a prime example of mass media brainwashing people into doing something. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a really interesting thing. I never, I didn't think about it until today in this conversation, but we are living in a world where it does feel like people just can be living in a completely separate reality. I mean, in the reality I live in, Vaccines are 95% effective, and of course you would take them. You know, your cell phone that you might be posting conspiracy theories is a tracking device, but the vaccine is not. Right. And yet, that's a reality that millions of people are living in. Millions of people are living in a reality where the 2020 election was stolen. It was not. Sorry, I don't care what your politics are. That's just reality. Not stolen. Right. Totally legit. And yet people are living convinced of this reality and it is spread through mass media, right? The social media, various so-called news networks that are really ideologically driven. Reality, it's basic elements of reality. Look, I grew up thinking we would have political divides over tax policy, maybe even certain social issues that I felt like were black and white, such as whether same-sex marriage should be legal to me, uh, should obviously be. But all right, that's the world I thought we would be living in. But to live in a world where it's like, does a vaccine work? <laughs> is I just uh, does, is COVID real? Right. People, people have told right. me, oh, I don't really think that many people have died of COVID. I think it's a hoax. That, you, you're absolutely right. We live in a world in which the boundary between fantasy and reality has eroded. Mm-hmm. And the, this movie and a lot of the movies we're seeing here are totally predicted that world. Yeah. And I mean, when this film was made, it was it was a commentary on mass media really through television. Like television. Right. could not have conceived the internet. Yeah. Even though the internet is really what Max is. Right. Right. Yeah. It's it's totally unregulated. I mean, the internet, right, is is the dark corners of sex and violence, and you can say anything. 100%. You can, right? Like, you can say, actually, who knew that we would miss the sex and the violence? The scary thing is you can say, again, vaccines didn't work, or the president wasn't actually elected, and you should rise up and try and overthrow the government, right? Like, (laughs) some sort of a snuff film, which is what Videodrome is about, almost seems quaint in comparison. Yeah, it's like, oh, (laughs) jeez. Those were the good old days. <laughs> the good old days, right. <laughs> but I think what was interesting is like the addiction to visual entertainment and what it does to our minds right. was the overarching idea here. And that is super prevalent today, going back to, as we were talking about before, just like our smartphones, like how we you know like feel completely naked if we leave the home without our smartphones. And in this True. film, you see, again, it's kind of unclear what the time period is. They don't really say a year, but there are homeless people in this film that are junkies, not for drugs, but for television. 
and they have like homeless shelters where homeless people go in there just to get their television fix. They have all these partitioned like areas where I think they use the phrase cathode ray um, addiction or something like that. It was the church of the cathode ray tube, I think. Right, the cathode right. Ray, which was how TVs used to operate were these cathode rays. I found that really interesting. And I was like, oh man, like that addiction, that addiction to oh, visual yeah. entertainment is... By the way, I, I went to a CVS the other day to pick up something and there was a homeless person outside there staring at a phone screen mm-hmm. watching something. And I thought of this movie. I thought, oh wow, that's not far-fetched. Like that would have been like a science fiction element in this movie. It's not. That's our world. Yeah. That's our world. And that, this is no judgment on homeless people because the film makes clear and indeed, same thing with the Congress. And I think this is everybody. We are just addicted to the stimulation. And indeed, they've done studies that say getting likes on a post is an endorphin. Right. Releases endorphins like getting high. Right. So we cre- we physically can become addicted to the sensation of people liking our social media posts. So this isn't science fiction anymore. This is all of us living in that world. Yeah. One thing I want to just throw out before we move on from this film is the practice special effects in this movie are unbelievable. Like, really unbelievable. I still don't understand how they did some of them, which is crazy because this movie's like almost third... No, almost 40 years old. Excuse me. Almost 40 years old, this film. And there's this scene where James Woods has this, like, vagina in his stomach that he's putting a gun into and his half his arm is stuck inside of this vagina that's in his stomach. And then the People are putting videotapes in it. I mean, this movie is just bananas, but you're in the hands of a master with Cronenberg. And when I say master, I mean a sick fuck that this guy's a master. I have to also add, of all of the protagonists, I kept talking about how nobody really succeeds in overthrowing their society. James Wood's character, Mm -hmm. the easily the sleaziest, most morally vacant character. He's yeah. An At the beginning of this of- movie, this guy is like, oh, this guy's awful. Like he's, he's, he's just a parasite yeah. trying to like make money off of sex and doesn't even care really if people are actually getting hurt or, or whatever. Ends up actually doing the most to engage in rebellion by the end of the film. He actually tries to overthrow certain powers behind Videodrome and he's you know, been converted to the cause of the cathode ray too. Although again, it's not really clear if that's real or not. Right, Maybe yeah. he's just a sad soul who loses his mind and commits suicide. It's not really clear, but he's a very interesting figure. Again, the science fiction anti-hero, maybe the most explicit version of this figure who you're never entirely quite comfortable with. Right. Right. They're, yeah. they're a figure who exists to dream and exists to kind of pursue whatever love or their own kind of sense of self or self-actualization. He's the fullest expression of this sort of dystopic hero who kind of occupies a space of sort of between selfishness and almost like a dreamer. Right. And this guy certainly falls on the selfishness spectrum. And yet there is something kind of strangely ambitious about this character that keeps you going with him. He wants to do sleaze, but Gosh darn it, he's going to do the best sleep. <laughs> I mean, again, going back to just character, super honest, and his motivation and his worldview of like how to handle this video drone and the system that comes along with it 
changes like four different times throughout the film. And I found that very also honest and representative of society as we're having this conversation and talking about our addiction to our phones and our addiction to media and our addiction to this kind of entertainment and the effects that it can have on our brain. You know, the honest answer is what are we going to do about it, David? Not a goddamn fucking thing. That's true. That's what (laughs) these movies tell you is it's too late. If it's a problem, it's already too late. It's already too late. God almighty. Videodrome, available on the Criterion channel, I believe. And it's also, there's a great Criterion edition Blu-ray of it. I highly recommend checking out. This would make a great pairing with the Congress, I think. So we're yeah. all of this is by accident. We did not plan for this nope. really to happen like this. But we never plan these out. We never plan these out, but it just <laughs> it's, they just happen that way. You should watch the Congress and Videodrome and then go to sleep and see what dreams you have. No kidding. They yeah. will be really wild. No but kidding. Yeah, on Criterion. And also on Peacock, I think, right? Yes, it is on Peacock. It is on Peacock. So check those out. Four down. Two to go. We're going to take a quick break, everybody. When Film Forward returns, David and I will give our final picks. Give me three sci-fi premonitions. Hello, my name is Sonia, and this is my Movie Minute. Are you in love with Mahershala Ali? If your answer is no, then you probably don't know who he is because it's literally impossible to watch him play any role and not fall madly in love with his depth, empathy, kindness, strength, and intelligence, and of course, good looks. In the new film, Swan Song, you get to fall in love with Mahershala twice because he plays both the lead roles. Swan Song is a high-concept sci-fi film that's so completely rooted in the human experience. It's a story about life, love, sacrifice, and what it would be like if you could shelter your family from death and loss. I don't want to give away too much because I went into the film totally uninformed of the plot, and it was really lovely to be surprised as it unfolded. I love films like Swan Song and Ex Machina that take place in a reality that's technologically advanced or futuristic, but where the desires, strengths, and flaws in people feel totally relatable to our age-old understanding of the human psyche. It gives both the filmmakers and audience a way to explore ideas in a more open-minded way because the unfamiliar time period or setting provides unexplored story opportunities. Swan Song comes out in theaters and on Apple in mid-December. I highly recommend you check it out and let us know what you think. That was my minute. Thanks for listening. Just breathe. I'm going to count you down from three. And on three, and two, and one. You have an opportunity here. I'm not done. I didn't say he could You're dying. I feel like I've fallen in love with her for the first time again. You don't like this. You think I like this? Being told I'm not me. Because you're not me. You are not me! All right, we are back here on Film Forward. I am here with David Chu in another edition of our patented Gimme 3 episodes. Gimme 3, sci-fi premonitions. And thus far, David has provided the Fritz Lang classic Metropolis and Ari Foreman's The Congress. 
and I have provided Terry Gilliam's Brazil and David Cronenberg's Videodrome. And now we are at our final picks and we've got some doozies here. David, your third and final. This is actually, when we first were talking about this idea, this was the film that I thought of first. It's, a, again, a film that I wish was better known. It came out in 1997. It's all about genetic engineering and the role in which genetics play in our lives. Mm-hmm. Little did I realize all the ways in this, which this would be predictive. It's written and directed by Andrew Nichol, who, as we'll see, is really a genius when it comes to sci-fi dystopias. It's called Gattaca, and it takes place in a futuristic world, not too far in the future, in which your whole life is mapped out by your genetics. And most people choose to have children through, you know, what's known as designer babies. They choose the embryos and they choose the child based on, all right, I want this gene with statistical probability of having the, you know, this amount of strength and this health condition and this no physical ailments here or there. And our main character is a navigator with dreams of going into space. And again, continues this theme of protagonists who really are about are dreamers. They're not seeking to overthrow society. They just want to find a sense of personal meaning and fulfillment yeah. in the society. The character Jerome Morrow, played by Ethan Hawke, and it turns out he is like the cream of the crop, which of course makes sense because Jerome Morrow has an incredible genetic code. And Jerome Morrow is one week out from going into space to Titan a special mission that can only occur once every 70 years. So everything looks like it's on track, except for a murder happens of the mission director. And now the police are digging around trying to figure out who killed the mission director. And it turns out the audience learns Jerome Morrow has a secret. He's not really Jerome Morrow. He's a natural birth, a person with actually, quote-unquote, inferior genes, meaning that he's nearsighted, He has a heart condition that predicted he would die by age 30, although he hasn't. He's not as physically strong. He's not in any way the kind of privileged elite of the the genetic elite. The society is divided into those who are designer babies who have grown up (laughs) to be people like the sort of privileged genetic people whose genes have been perfectly selected and quote unquote natural births where people just conceive the old fashioned way, just see whatever Gene's nature would pair up together. He's actually one of those. And he's taken on the identity of Jerome Morrow, played incredibly by Jude Law, a person whose genes set him up for everything to become the top of society. And yet, you know, he was sort of a, I think you get the idea, he was an Olympic swimmer and he came in, he got silver and he just couldn't handle it psychologically (laughs) because his genes promised him he was supposed to be gold medalist and he actually tried to commit suicide failed as you come to learn and is paralyzed from the waist down and doesn't really have any meaning for living anymore so he sold his identity to ethan hawk and ethan hawk has to constantly you know the ability to sequence genetics is so rapid and omnipresent that he's doing everything from like scraping off any kind of dead skin cells and then sprinkling some of jude law's skin cells on his keyboard to wearing fake fingertips. If anyone does a blood test, as some of Jude Law's blood stolen in there to giving like a fake tube, uses to give urine samples, a whole elaborate disguise that he uses to hide the fact that he's actually an imposter. He's not one of the genetic elite. And he swears he didn't kill the mission director. But the question is, who did? And 
can Ethan Hawke stay undetected for one week until he finally gets to live his dream of going into space? Because otherwise you get the, you learn that he was a janitor beforehand because people who are not part of the genetic elite are not allowed to have the, you know, incredible careers like becoming astronauts. It mirrors the same way discrimination even does an analogy to the way that, you know, society used to have discrimination based on race or gender. Right. And now it's made it, quote unquote, more scientific by making it all about just pure genetics. Yeah. But the discrimination is still there. And so it's definitely a warning about what would happen the more we start to use people's genetics our ability to manipulate genes, our ability to analyze genetics, to shape real-world consequences in our society. And it's so funny, I just watched a documentary about everything from our your insurance forms to job applications or whatever based on these computer algorithms that oftentimes can be racially biased or have other biases, gender biases that we don't even know about. And we can't even detect because the algorithms are so complicated. Hmm. And yet our impacting people's real abilities to follow careers, get jobs, get housing. Wow. So we're already, again, living in this world in which mathematical formulas are determining our life. And again, the same thing. Ethan Hawke is given a 90% chance of dying by age 30 based on his heart. But guess what? He's still alive. And indeed, I remember when I was younger, I was part of a group called Junior Statesmen of America. We're just sort of a political debating club. And we had a conference. And I remember we were defending the whole idea of genetic engineering, yes or no, right? And I gave a speech about, I took the yes side and I was talking about the idea of there were children who would be born with these horrible conditions and, you know, who might die at an early age. And this is a chance to avoid that and avoid that fate. And this young woman, you know, as a teenager, it was for like high school students. This young woman goes up to me and she later become really good friends. And she said, I liked your speech, but you're totally wrong. And I said, well, all right, well, that's quite an introduction. And she said, you know, I have a a rare condition called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And there's a good chance that I will die before age 26. But I would rather get a chance to live and take those odds and get to be me than never having been born at all. Yeah. And indeed, she did not die. Spoiler alert, she did not die at age 26. Right. And went on to have an incredible career and an incredibly fulfilling life. And she's got this wonderful marriage. And so it was really a very interesting lesson that here's much like Ethan Haas character, the mathematical predictions may say one thing, probability is not certainty. And should we chain people's outcomes, probabilities and mathematical formulas, again, in sometimes in ways we don't even understand the way those formulas operate. I'm really happy we're ending with the two films that we're ending on. Because, you know, we've been talking about kind of like how technology becomes part of the system and how hard it is to beat it. With this film and the last film we're going to talk about, both of those films is human determination and willpower and love and the dreams overcome. This film was so great. Ethan Hawke's character is like so easy to get behind and he's such a great character. His goal is so like beautiful and those beautiful wide shots of him like looking up just at the sky and seeing those spaceships take off into the, those rockets take off into space. God almighty, isn't that such a wonderful and like telling visual, you know, like we were talking about in Brazil, he's just like, you know, dreams of flying dreams of adventure. This guy is like literally staring it in the face. This guy is actually doing something about it yeah, and putting everything he has into it. And I think human determination as the theme here is really amazing. That's why I love this movie. And the, and the last movie we're going to talk about so much as sci-fi films, because because they allow you to connect in a much more emotional way than you do with, say, 2001 A Space Odyssey, 
which is obviously a masterpiece, obviously like a flawless film, but you don't feel much from an emotional standpoint in 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's always the knock against Kubrick is that he's kind of cold. Whereas this has a lot of heart. This has, it's mostly heart, you know, like all of these sci-fi and technological elements are fascinating. And NASA, I think 10 years ago, ranked Gattaca as the number one most plausible sci-fi film. Yeah. And I think a warning to NASA that we could sometimes overlook people's potential by focusing on genetics instead of... The interesting thing is, you might ask, well, doesn't anybody notice that Ethan Hawke doesn't kind of look that much like Jude Law? And how come nobody's detected him? And one of the things somebody says is, people can't wrap their heads around the idea that a quote-unquote invalid, as they call it, a natural birth could get this far. Because their whole ethos is designed that genes are destiny. That the idea that somebody could actually transcend the fate that their genetics has predicted for them. To believe that means to rip apart the underpinnings on which the society has become based. There's even that scene where he goes in for the job interview for this job, you know, to. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, he's like all nervous about the interview and he's, they do the blood test and they're like, congratulations, you got it. And he says, what about the interview? He's like, that was the interview. It's all about the genetics, the personality or, or getting to know you. There was. None of that. So, and, and indeed, you should look up. Here's another additional movie I'll plug in the Coded Bias is the name of the documentary. We run people's resumes through computer analyses to predict whether they are a good hire or not. Right. And so instead of relying on the old fashioned elements of job interviews and references, it's increasingly being run by computers. And one of the things they found, for example, is well, not a lot of people who are in top performing tech sector jobs went to a women's college or had women's studies mm. or anything related to women on the resume. Why? Well, women are not typically hired for those roles because of systematic, you know, sexism in that, those fields. But the computer doesn't know that. Right. The computer just goes, oh, well, none of the people who ever become like executives and CEOs are women. So therefore, I'll just exclude women because they must make bad candidates. No, it's because we're biased. But the computer is making those decisions for people. And instead of actually, this once happened to me once where I was working at, um, I can say because the company no longer exists, Borders, the bookstore, my friend applied for a job and I thought she'd be great. And she later on would go to like an Ivy League school and would have done perfectly well in this job. And she had to take some sort of like psychological profile test and the computer flunked her we couldn't be told why but we couldn't hire her because the computer decided she was invalid wow that's crazy and that's that's not the future that's our time period right right now so what you said oh the job interview when they the guy runs his blood through a computer and says that's the job interview that really happens yeah my god borders always sucked no offense david (laughs) i was not it's not my company. Borders so. was always, they always sucked. I was more of a Barnes and Noble cat, but. <laughs> well, uh, I have news for you. They're both they, they, large they, book they, selling corporations. Yeah, they both suck. Which, which are really in the shadow of another large book selling corporation. Yeah. Um, that also is where some of these films are available for rental um, on their digital site. You know what I'm talking about. Um, there goes our potential Barnes and Noble sponsorship. Yeah. <laughs> One more thing before we move on from Gattaca is I just want to also throw out that this film reps my hometown, partially shot in Pomona, California, P-Town represent. Oh, wow. Yeah. I have to say, by the way, the look of this movie, everything from the art direction to the cinematography 
especially the cinematography is unbelievably gorgeous. Yeah. It is maybe one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. I agree. Yeah, it's just gorgeous, gorgeous film. The camera work is very patient. The props, like, I mean, it's not very often we talk about props on Film Forward, which we should. The props and, like, creating all those worlds with, like, the dead skin and the, like, fake fingertips and, like, all this. It's just immaculate, immaculate work. Tremendous, yeah. tremendous film. It's a masterpiece. Like you said, I think it doesn't get enough credit it deserves probably because like it came out in a time where there was like a lot of big blockbuster science fiction films, you know, and this one was kind of more grounded and more heady, Yeah, but it should be watched. So my friends at home, watch it. Gattaca, it's available on Hulu and please let us know what you think. And that takes us right into another film about human determination, and that is the Truman Show, which is directed by Peter Weir and written by Nickel. What's his first name? Andrew Nickel. And it's written by Andrew Nickel, who wrote the and writer. directed Gattaca, which we had, yeah. again, did not know, did not plan. David yeah. texted me today. He was like, did you know that he wrote both of these movies? Like, no, I didn't. Absolutely insane. <laughs> I know. Who knew? So from the same mind that brought you Gattaca comes The Truman Show, starring Jim Carrey as Truman Burbank, who for his entire life, has been unknowingly living in a massive television studio. Every day and every move of this man's life has been on broadcast television 24-7. People can watch The Truman Show. All of his friends, his wife, his co-workers, every stranger he's ever encountered is an actor on The Truman Show. And the more we learn about Truman and his history and the history of this show, the more uncomfortable and tragic this story becomes. Young Truman, he wanted to be an explorer. He wanted to travel. He wanted to see the world. And the network and the creators of the TV show prevented that by finding ways to dissuade him, including killing his father off in an episode with a right. boating accident. So he became afraid of the water for the rest of his poor kid's life. Yeah. But Truman still has the urge to break free. And especially when he believes that the woman that he becomes infatuated with has moved to Fiji. Right. Again, another woman who he never really has enough time to have any human interaction with and yet just becomes like, he'll walk over fire and across nails to get to her. Like, all of these female protagonists, I don't think it's even really about love. It's about dreams. It's about dreams. Yeah, and they it's about... A symbol and it's, for dreams. it's a, like, as we talked about with Brazil, it's it's about romance. Not necessarily romance in, in the lovey-dovey sense, but it's just, like, the romantic idea of going to heaven and earth to change your reality and to search for something better and true and full of love. Because here... Truman, like with Brazil and like with some of the other films we've talked about today, he is living a mundane life in this TV studio that he doesn't know, Sea Haven. Right. He's got a boring job. He's got like a cookie cutter house. You know, it's like again, not starving, not lacking for not starving. He's got he's got a beautiful wife. He's got a good friend, and they right. <laughs> you know they have their beers and like but empty. It's empty. It is empty. Yeah. And Truman starts to suspect that something is amiss because he keeps trying to escape. And everything is preventing him from escaping. And that's the setup. And the execution, in my opinion, is one of the most flawless, impressive, attention-to-detail-driven films made in the last quarter century. In terms of prediction, like this predicts reality television. This was like 
I think this came out in 97 or 98. This was before like the huge wave of reality TV came. You know, it predicts social media. We're all like stars of our own Truman show now. Influencers, YouTubers, the mundaneness of their lives, right? Going to a restaurant would become, uh, you know, get a million views on YouTube. Yeah. Right. Like talking about, oh, I went shopping today. Yeah. You know, doing the most mundane things and these things are getting like millions and millions of views. Like I was watching on a plane, I was like looking over the shoulder at some like teenage girl and she was watching some YouTube videos of like some influence who are doing the most mundane shit. And I was like, God almighty, what is happening? She was living her own Truman show. But is the appeal of the Truman show as they establish it's more real than reality, right? Which again, we have that theme, right? And the head of it, Christoph, who's, you know, is kind of a a subtle to- nod to that At one point, <laughs> you know, he's sort of like God right. a bit. At one point, he literally speaks to Truman from the heavens, right. from this giant fake sky that's operating over his town. Like says, More Christian uh, subversiveness here. Yeah, yeah. It's really fascinating to see this theme. At one point, he says, oh, why do people like it? Because he's real. Yeah. Where everything's manufactured, drama is manufactured, fiction is manufactured. Look, we love fiction. We do these podcasts about all these are fictional narrative films. And yet people crave the idea that people are real and these influencers are real and quote unquote reality TV is real, even though there are writers who write them. Spoiler alert. Sorry, everybody. Reality TV has writers, Mm -hmm. but we crave that authenticity. Yeah. Right. And that's something maybe it says something about our own society that we feel it's lacking so much so that we elect a president who is a reality (laughs) TV star and people who who vote for him say, well, he He's the most real. He tells right. it like it is, right? Yeah, ironically, in the unreality is reality. We're craving reality. And ironically, something that like the Truman Show, which is totally manufactured, this man's entire life is manufactured, and yet it feels more real to us, or at least to a certain percentage of the audience. Every so often, they have these wonderful cutaways to the people watching it, and they're, they're so into his story, yeah. and they're so into his life. And I think, and like you said, it predicts the way that we all become performers in social media, right? We have our social media selves that we put out into the world. And I think that's interesting with the actors in the show, you know, like his wife in the show is played by Laura Linney. Yeah. She has that. Yeah. She's great. She has that moment where she breaks down and she almost like kind of has an identity crisis, you know, it feels like, where do you draw the line of what's real and what's not? Because your entire life, she doesn't have any off days, (laughs) you know, she's Truman's wife, 24, seven, 365. In that moment, she has this identity crisis of like, who am I? What am I doing here? You know, she leaves the show, but that's also why you see this influx of depression perhaps nowadays with young kids is because like they perhaps are having an identity crisis of not knowing who their true self is because they're putting on constantly this, as you mentioned, this like social media version of themselves and then trying to live a life outside of that as well. Which connects to the Congress, right? connects to Brazil, connects to all these other films. I would say if there's anything that these sci-fi dystopia films, these premonition films all have in common, it's the boundaries between reality and unreality become very blurred in the future and are becoming blurred in our future. And maybe even we're always blurred, but we're not aware of them till now. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's interesting. These are all from different time periods, but they're all wrestling with the same similar questions about reality versus unreality. In fact, interesting thing about robot, the term robot, I think is a check word that originally was just meant to be like a factory worker. And it later on became a term for a 
artificial person. And so when Metropolis is made, it's tapping into that idea that factory workers have become indistinguishable from the machines they operate, which is indeed exactly what we all have become. Like, so it creates a fake human, an artificial human as a robot, but the humans themselves you know, they work for things called the heart machine. So in Metropolis, they're very described in very physical ways. And the workers move in very robotic ways. They're wonderfully choreographed. So we go all the way to the Truman Show. We see, going back 100 years, a sense of all of these films just wrestling with the boundaries between human and machine, reality and unreality, are just getting more and more blurred as our society moves into the future. Right. Really fascinating. One of my friends, I was telling him about this episode and the three that I had picked, and he asked me, he was like, ah, is Truman Show really a science fiction film? With you, with Gattaca, when we came up with this concept, the Truman Show was the first film that like came to my head. I was like, well, I'm going to pick the Truman Show for sure. And I asked myself, I was like, holy shit, is it a science fiction film? I always just associate it as a science fiction film. So I looked it up on the internet. A lot of places had it listed as sci-fi. Right. And a lot of places didn't, you know? And I was like, huh. And so anyways, I rewatched it and something came to my head. I was like, you know what? I think this is a science fiction film. Peter Weir treats it as a science fiction film because it's a science fiction film to Truman. This story is sci-fi through the lens of Truman Burbank. His whole world is getting flipped upside down. And the way that Weir shoots it, the way that Weir edits it, the score all very oh, that score is amazing. It's though. incredible. Yeah, Philip Glass knocks it out of the park. But tonally, this is a science fiction film. And for Truman, it is exactly that. So to my friend who questioned me, there's your answer. <laughs> I will also say, by the way, I think it was a science fiction film in 1998. I think it, it was, yeah. Out. And maybe that's why I associate it because like when I first I saw it in the theater when it first came out, and like as a kid, I was like, this is some freaky stuff, you know. Right. There's a whole thing where he says cameras have gotten so small. They're like the size of a pinhead. Yeah. Right. So in 1998, that's science fiction. Yeah. In 2021, that's reality. Right. The thing about our world is technology has advanced so much in the last 20, 25 years. The Truman Show probably could be done. I mean, take a lot of money, but could it be made? Oh, 100. Yeah. Easily. Easily. And yet that's the freaky thing. I guess that is the freaky thing. This film doesn't feel like science fiction anymore because it is so close to reality. But not even that long ago, it was a super high concept idea. Right, right. That's the world we're living in. We're now living in a world where sci-fi premonitions are becoming real world realities. Absolutely. Unbelievable. My God. The Truman Show, everybody, check it out. It is available to rent online, not available free for on any streaming platforms, but absolutely worth a watch. Honest to God, it's one of my favorite films ever. Read Plato's Allegory of the Cave and then watch The Truman Show. That's my recommendation to you all. David, as always, it's an honor to do this with you. And this one was no exception. I always feel like I took a tab of acid with these episodes with you. I feel like I have some <laughs> some higher sense of uh, connectedness to the world and all that kind of stuff. Well, I, that's what good movies will do to you. That's right? right. That's right. And we just talked about six of them. Well, I think it's because filmmakers 
we talk about the way reality and unreality, the boundaries can blur, but great filmmakers know that well, because what they do is they push the boundaries in some ways become much like Truman in the unreal, become more real than the real. They crystallize our society, our social conditions, our questions about life and existence into ways that capture reality even more than we feel like we can be aware of as we walk through our own reality. There's a great moment in the Congress where Robin Wright, when she's getting herself digitized, she wants it in her contract that she won't do science fiction. I think it's Ari Fullman doing a bit of a wink and a nod about his own science fiction film. Right. And you know, he puts in the mouth of this really sleazy executive, something that's really true, which is that science fiction, we shouldn't look down on science fiction because it's a genre. Science fiction in some ways can capture the greatest truths about our society, even though they present societies that seem to be entirely fabricated, entirely unlike our own. They're actually more like our own right. than we may realize, and they hold a mirror up to ourselves. 100%. And these six films are hard, concrete examples of that. So thank you for your picks, David. Thank you for being here and looking forward to the next one, my friend. Me too. Can't wait to do this again. Thank you all for listening to Film Forward. Please check out these films. Let us know what you think in the comments section, and we will see you next time on Film Forward. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.